I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And we're glad to have Sarah back around our imaginary microphone and table uh, for our conversation today. We are back in a pretty new series that we began last week, taking a look uh, with what we hope is both honesty and hope at death and dying. And last time we sort of just laid the ground named out loud, this is maybe the kind of subject that it is really easy to want to ignore or avoid or deny or think I'll deal with it some other time or other people will deal with it, but not me because I'm invincible. Um, And that as people of faith and particularly as uh, pastors who are religious professionals as well, there's a value for us in having honest conversation, maybe hopefully making it easier for others to be invited into that conversation as well, uh, with that line in mind of Mr. Rogers, that whatever is mentionable is manageable. And so as much as it might be uncomfortable for folks to think about death and dying um, and what that looks like from a faith perspective, all the way down to uh, funeral services and things like that, that's where we started. So where are we going to go today, Sarah? Okay, so we're all going to die. It's going to happen. So we should make some decisions now while we're of sound body and mind um, about what's going to happen to us after we die. And I'm not talking about have you accepted our Lord and Savior as your personal Savior? No, I'm talking about what's going to happen to your body. Because especially in the United States, that is something you get to have an opinion about. Especially mm-hmm. if you like talk to your loved ones now about what are your wishes when you die, do you want your body to be cremated or buried? Do you want to do organ do- donation? These are all things that like we should make decisions about now. That way, when you do die, your family's not sitting around with the funeral director going, oh, I don't know, great aunt Sally never told us whether or not she wanted to be cremated or buried. Uh, what do we do? What's the best choice? Um, you know, so those are things that we should make decisions about now. Yeah, maybe it would be helpful to to get our, our footing in this conversation um, with where we often start conversations, both in this podcast and as Christians, is at least to consider what do our background or our foundation in the scriptures have to say on the subject? And this is one of those places to go, well, the Bible isn't. If you were looking for a book of answers on here's the one right way for Christian burial to happen, there isn't a book or a verse or a commandment. And across the broad swath of the scriptures, you get multiple perspectives or voices on how we think about our bodies when they die that I don't think are contradictory, but are certainly like multiple voices. You sometimes will get voices like an early genesis of earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, and that recognition that our bodies, all of our bodies, along with the bodies of all other living things, return back basically to the soil and other things come out of them. Um, You'll also get stories where people bury their loved ones, from Abraham burying his deceased wife Sarah in the cave of Machpelah, uh, giving them a land uh, uh, ownership uh, before the the children of Israel get there centuries later, to Jesus and his friend Lazarus buried, as well as Jesus' own temporary burial in a garden tomb in which nobody had ever been buried. So there's a wide variety of practices, or at least uh, mentions of 
ceremonial burial or the acknowledgement of our bodies going back to the soil across the scripture. So does, does knowing that help frame our conversation differently or, or in any particular way? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the Bible was written over a long period of time. And so I am sure that throughout that time, burial practices and rituals changed. Um, wasn't all the same. Uh, because they're also influenced by what's going on around them. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, just as it's changed, like how we bury our dead now is vastly different from what happened 2000 years ago yeah. when Jesus died. Um, and that's because technology has changed. Time has changed. Uh, we also live in an entirely different part of the con- world. Yeah. Than what Jesus did. That's- um, that's such a helpful point that I don't know I'd, I'd really registered a thought about um, until j- you mentioned and brought it to mind again, that I think sometimes we use the word or, or translate the word buried and picture a hole in the ground six feet deep in the soil when that's not really what you're talking about in a lot of ancient Palestine where the mm-hmm. ground is so rocky. That's just not a thing. And again, we miss or we forget that the practice in a lot of ancient Palestinian Judaism was your a body would be buried in a tomb kind of a space that's you know like a cave or something like that for a time. And then after a certain amount of time, after the body has decomposed, Forgive this is a little gross for a moment. The bones were taken out and put in an ossuary box, and the family might keep that box somewhere. Um, and it's the bones of so and so, but the rest of the body has disintegrated, and that was the assumption. We have ossuaries from the first century. In, in mm-hmm. fact, pretty famously, in the last couple of decades, they found an ossuary that bore the name um, James, brother of Jesus, that everybody wondered, is this the James who was the brother of Jesus in the Bible? I mean, it's like, this is clearly uh, a, a widespread practice. And that doesn't get mentioned often in the Gospels and the New Testament because they assume everybody knew that. But 2,000 years later, we don't assume that. So sometimes people picture, yeah, in the Bible, they buried people. Well, kind of, but not really the way we think of it because we don't a year later dig up the body and then put the bones in a box. That to us feels weird. And probably to ancient people, putting your loved one's body in the ground and never touching it again felt weird because just a, a totally different way of thinking. And again, that's because of the climate, right? Right. Um, right. Uh, several years ago, I went to the um, ELCA National Youth Gathering in New Orleans, and we got a tour of a cemetery. And so New Orleans has a very specific climate, and they don't bury their dead underground because it's too swampy, um, but it's really hot and humid. So what they do is they have like a two-tier box above ground, and they put a freshly dead body on the top layer and there they get to be for about a year or until the next person dies and then their whatever is left over after a year which is usually not a lot it might be some bones but mostly you've turned back into like just biodegraded dust mm-hmm. um, you get kind of swept into the bottom layer which is open to the ground it's um not enclosed and you join whoever in your family who has died with the remains of their dust and whatever we decompose into um and that is what makes sense in new orleans because of their climate yeah yeah that 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 wouldn't work in pennsylvania where we three live because our climate 
doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it sounds like this is a helpful reminder that biblically there is not like a single, here's the one way you're supposed to do it kind of a thing. Uh, and practice across the planet that we now live on. And there are Christians all around the world in all sorts of different climates. Somewhere burial in six feet of earth is a possibility in some places where that's just not viable as a possibility. Um, so across Christian history and practice, it seems like there's been a variety of ways. In many places, burial in the ground, like you think of in a cemetery, is the norm, but not everywhere and always. And that raises the question in the time in which we live about is something like cremation, having remains burned and reduced to ashes and then interred or buried or something like that. Is that allowable? Is, does, is the Christian faith compatible with that is one of those questions. I've had on a number of occasions, people approach me and ask, is that something that Christians are allowed to do? So how, how do you how do you approach this conversation if you've had somebody approach you with that question? So I've never actually had anybody approach me with this question in a professional sense, but my wider extended family has had this conversation a lot because um, my grandparents were of the opinion that you should not be cremated. And um, for them, that's because the their whole reason for their faith and their actions was in the hopes that when Jesus comes again, they would be resurrected and um, raptured because uh, that's the language that they would use. Um, and so they absolutely would not support anybody being cremate, cremated um, because how would you participate in the rapture if you didn't have a physical body anymore? Um, and so that was their belief. I didn't necessarily agree with it because even if you are buried and not cremated, there is some decomposing that happens even with mm -hmm. all of our fancy and embalming techniques. And, um, you know, you're still going to decompose. Um, so, and I do not have never believed that when Jesus comes again and we are resurrected, that we would be half decomposed zombies that something was going to happen there and we would not be zombies. So, okay. So it sounds like you, you helpfully sort of called attention to in Christian history. One objection that has sometimes been raised to the practice of cremation is, well, doesn't it get in the way of or deny the resurrection of the dead? And it sounds like you're saying pretty clearly, no, I don't think so. If you think that through at all, really, you can fully believe that Jesus uh, at his coming again will resurrect us bodily from the dead and we will have that new creation experience the mm -hmm. same way that um, Jesus raises Lazarus, who's been in the grave and starting to decompose for four days or um, like wh whatever we believe happened to Lazarus, stretch it out however long Jesus is able to do the same with us as well. Um, right, because I also believe that the folks who didn't have any embalming techniques like Martin Luther, John Wesley, you know, the great fathers and mothers of our faith, um, those who came before us who predates embalming techniques, um, that Jesus is coming for them too, right? right. Like mm -hmm. they're also going to get to participate in this, even if they have been reduced, reduced back to dust, Yeah, um, that God can make us new again, no yeah. matter what condition our body is in when Jesus does come. Yeah whether that is a pile of ash because we've been cremated or if it's because we are dust because we have decomposed. It, it, this is one of those things that I'm not sure um, 
I'm not sure that that even even the Christian faith has done a good job uh, thinking out or helping people to think through. But it seems it is obvious and important to say is that whatever it means to be you or me, whatever it means to be a person, isn't necessarily attached to particular molecules in the universe because our molecules are constantly changing and you know talk to any doctor or biology expert they'll talk they'll tell you how long it is how frequent for all your skin cells have basically been replaced and you have new skin and how frequently other other molecules in your body are replaced in that sort of constant flux that whatever it means for me to be me and as much as I like to imagine I'm the same person I was when I went to bed last night or a year ago whatever the molecules of me have changed mm-hmm. And that hasn't gotten in the way with my my sense of being the same person from when I go to sleep to when I wake up in the morning. Um, and if that's what it is to be alive, that uh, the in the course of a lifetime, the molecules that have been me, man, that's a pretty wide cloud of molecules. And when I die, is it just those in the molecules that are me? Is it just whatever I happen to have on me when I died? That that seems like that's that's overly simplistic and reducing me just to my molecules. So similarly, yeah, if God's able to hold on to the the continuity of me, if if the same me who goes to bed is the same me who wakes up, even if there's different particles in me uh, in the meantime between what I ate or breathed or whatever, then yeah, of course, Jesus can do the same thing with me uh, in resurrection from the dead, because that's even how our living process works. I mean, if God could create Adam out of dirt. Yeah, yeah. Then why could not God not create recreate us? Sure. Sure. Or, I mean, back it up to Genesis 1, where God's creation is out of nothing, right? You know, God just yeah. speaks. And there's so if, if God can make a universe with nothing as raw materials, I have no problem believing that God can make a me out of a handful of scattered parts, whether they have turned to dust or have been turned to ash first or are perfectly preserved somewhere in a mummy-like state or something. I, I am perfectly content with not knowing how God does this, or even exactly what mm-hmm. I will look like in the new creation. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do wonder at some things though, um, which I know will never get answered until the new creation happens, but like, how old will I appear? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. will I appear as old as I am when I die? Um, and if so, will God also like, will I be restored to like a certain level of health? Cause I don't know how that works, um, but right. there's no more disease, but like my poor eyesight, is that considered a disease? Will I be perfectly right. able to see? But then if I am perfectly able to see because my poor eyesight is a disease, what about those who have spent their entire lives blind or deaf who do not mm-hmm. see those things as a dis- disability? Right. It's right. just right. part of who they are. Right. Um, will they be able to see or hear, um, and like, then what does that say about those communities who like that is that just part of their identity? Yeah. Um, and then without that, like, does that questions? Yeah. I have questions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That to get yeah. answers. Um, it's just things, things I wonder, like, yeah. if I live to be 97, which would be amazing. Um, <laughs> will I in the new creation be 97? Or will I be, you know, at the peak of my health i don't know right. when that is considered but i don't know I right don't. right right I, and i i appreciate your you're being able to say i can confidently believe in a god who raises the dead even if i'm not privy to how the details work out mm-hmm. 
I was having this conversation actually just yesterday with my daughter. Um, and, uh, she was asking, uh, like, she just like point blank. It was like, dad, how can it be that you go to heaven? Because when you die, you turn to dust and you turn into a skeleton. Which is it? Is it I become a skeleton or I go to heaven? It can't be both. (laughs) And, um, I mean, part of my answer to her was sort of like that. Well, yeah, I'm going to give you a both and kind of an answer. And like the best I could do off the, uh, the, the, on the fly was say, well, imagine for a moment you're talking to a caterpillar and you are saying to the caterpillar, there's going to come a point when things are different for you and you'll have wings. And the, you know, the caterpillar's like, that doesn't make sense. I'm a worm. Basically, I'm a worm right now. And then you have to describe to this caterpillar, well, what's going to happen is you're going to go into this like dark place and your body's going to turn to liquid. And then you're going to come out and you're and like, so the caterpillar, this sounds like nonsense. And it sounds like death is the end. It's like, well, if I'm going to turn into liquid, then that's it. That's the end for me. But to say no. And at the same time, there's this other reality that will be different that somehow you won't eat leaves anymore. You'll drink nectar and yep, it'll be different. And yet you'll be you somehow. And yet you will be this new creation. And I guess for me, I don't know whether this landed for my kid, but for me, like something like that has to be like from God's vantage point, mm-hmm. like, okay, it'll be different. You will be you. The unity of you is held on to. You will be new creation. And if I can wrap my brain around that caterpillars and the butterflies are doing this all the time, then I can imagine a God doing this writ large for much more complex beings like human beings or something like that without a chrysalis, but with death. I mean, like, I can, I can chalk that up to God's genius if God can do it with a butterfly. That's a great analogy. It is. Good job. I don't think I would be quite so nuanced if my kid asked me this question. Uh, well, I also, he would, he would probably ask me, when we die, are we going to be a ghost or a zombie? It can't be both because that's in, where he is right now. <laughs> in, in fairness, too, I also told my daughter, why are you afraid of skeletons? All living people are skeletons. They just have meat on them. So so my my first draft is a little rougher and a little more. Why are you afraid of skeletons? I'm a skeleton, too. I just have meat on me. Anyway, um, I think it's worth also noting that besides our off-the-cuff immediate responses, like we aren't on our own to to... At, to address this question, even though we don't have a list of Bible verses about cremation or not, but the early church in the years that we were getting fed to lions or killed in gladiator battles or put on slave ships and sunk to the bottom of the ocean, like we've been through this and early church fathers mm-hmm. and mothers were asked questions like, well, how can there be a resurrection or how will we be resurrected if, you know, uh, so many of our ancestors were fed to lions and their arms or legs or their whole bodies went into the lion and became part of the lion. And like, this was a crisis of faith for those early generations of Christians. And there were fathers and mothers in the church who wrote and thought and theologized. And their answer was very similar to where we're landing right now of like, there's nothing that can stop God from raising us up. So whether you die in a fire or got fed to a lion or killed by a gladiator, whatever, God's able to raise us up. So there's nothing that is too powerful, too uh, chaotic or too scattered for God to remake us in new creation. And for, at least for me, it, it's it's of some assurance to know that older sisters and brothers in the faith, even from way, 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 way back, weren't asking the exact same questions, but similar enough to go, oh, I'm not just making mm-hmm. this up because it sounds good to me. This, yeah, they, they had similar kind of reasoning and that they were able to theologize without saying, I have to have one Bible verse that proves it, but more they were able to think theologically. What is God like? Is it what's possible for God? And that kind of thing. So what about organ do- donation? Okay. And and specifically, like, I'm kind of of the same opinion about organ donation mm-hmm. as I am about cremation and um, 
burial. Like it doesn't matter because God makes all things new. But yet I know that there are Christians out there and possibly other faith traditions that are non-Christian that I just don't know about who resist uh, the idea of organ, organ donation. Yeah. Well, maybe it would be fair to say that uh, while indeed, yeah, there might be other religious faiths that uh, are opposed to organ donation, uh, at least for my part, I can't speak to how that, why that's important or not important to them. My guess is some sense of the sacredness of the body or something like that, that you're not supposed to mess with it. But from a, uh, from within the Christian family, I think there are groups either within broad Christianity or on the, I'll say, fringes of classic Christianity um, and who have been opposed to organ donation. And with something similar to the argument that you had entertained from your grandparents about cremation, about how do you participate in the resurrection if your heart got donated to so-and-so or your lung got donated to so-and-so or something like that. So at least part of how we might respond to that question might be similar to the way you've framed, helped frame things for cremation. If, if God's able to raise me from the dead from ashes, God's able to raise me from the dead, even if two human beings use the same heart muscle or something like that. Um, maybe, maybe it would also be worth asking, not just is, are there Christian reasons we're not allowed to have organ donation, but the flip side, is there a Christian case to be made in favor of organ donation? I think there is. I mean, you know, the idea of giving life to another person through organ donation. Um, Jesus gave us life through. Yeah. You know, in a sense, organ donation. <laughs> it was his entire body. Yeah. But, you know, he gave us life through yeah. his own death mm-hmm. um, and then resurrection three days later. But like, that's why that's why I'm an organ donor. That's yeah. why my driver's license says organ donor. Yeah. Um, because if I can help somebody else live. Mm-hmm. When I am done with my organs, then so be it. You know, again, mm-hmm. God can recreate whatever organs I need for heaven, whether we need the same organs. I, I don't know how that's right. going to work. It doesn't matter. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, God will give me the organs that I need to live in heaven. Yeah. Whatever they yeah. might be. Yeah. There, There is a great scene in an early season of Grey's Anatomy where a surgical intern is meeting with the family of a patient who is brain dead and talking to them about organ donation. And like, you know, it says on her driver's license, she's an organ donor. So they're going to go through like, what can they and can they not take? Um, And, you know, the family, you know, is grieving and very in like agreeing to things like, yeah, you can have her heart. Yep. That's, that's, that's good. Yes. You can have, um, this other internal organ. Yes, that's fine. And like the um, intern is like incapable of reading the room and about like where the emotional state is for the family mm-hmm. and is just going down the list of like, well, okay, well, what about her eyes? Mm-hmm. And the family's like her eyes. And she's all like launches into this whole like, oh, yes, there's now these procedures where we can harvest her eyes and give them to somebody who hasn't been able to see and you know they'll be able to see and like they're all like but but that like doesn't she need her eye like yeah like um and then she's like okay well then that's a no for the eyes and then she's like what about the skin and like the family's horrified because they're i think still planning on an open casket funeral and, mm-hmm. and it's like her skin you want her skin too and it's like kind of 
keeps like snowballing into yeah. like um being horrified and, like yes burn victims could use her skin mm-hmm. um you know if there is somebody who we who could take it now like right. that's kind of a right. big deal. right um but it's uh i've learned several things from watching that one scene <laughs> of Cray's <laughs> anatomy and one of that is being just because we have it on our driver's license about yes i i agree with organ donation um that if you want to do organ donation you should definitely have the conversation with your loved ones who might be in a position of making those decisions after you're no longer able to to make sure that you're all on the same page about what that means yeah um like mm-hmm. if there is anything off the table let that be known um, yeah. but also let it be known of the things that you do want to see like if you're perfectly fine with after you're dead then removing your eyes that needs to be known um right. you know if you have eyes that would work well for that like i'm pretty much blind so he probably wouldn't want my eyeballs but you know if you have good eyes yes but you need to talk about it yeah and i'm so i mean so so grateful for the way you framed that that while for a lot of people, their first introduction to this conversation is at the DMV when they're getting their driver's license and the question is framed, <laughs> are you going to be an organ donor? And yeah, good. That's a great first step. But yeah, super helpful to make sure after you leave the DMV to have conversation with your loved ones, especially if there's a change in your status there. This is what I want. This is what I don't want. Or this is what I'm comfortable with. And I'll be honest, too, having been in the room in the hospital ICUs with families, when that conversation starts with someone from organ recovery, um, that can be really jarring for family members who are already going through hell, right? I mean, like if you're in that mm-hmm. position, something terrible has happened. And then to have the somebody's job, God bless them, that somebody's job is to be willing to go speak with family members. But often family members are not necessarily thinking about what are the things that could be usable. And it is helpful. And again, this is for me part of why we're having this conversation in a podcast. And hopefully when you listeners are listening, life is going normally and you can bear hearing these things right now. Um, but these are things that are worth knowing that, yeah, sometimes some, it's not just organs, but like your corneas can be used, uh, for other people in, in your eyes or skin or things like that. And that it's for skin grafts, uh, where there are burn victims. Sometimes people have a hard time imagining how could skin be useful? Well, it's yeah, for burn victims. And that the flip side is true that just because you say you are wanting to be an organ donation, uh, an organ donor doesn't mean that your organs are usable. It, it really depends at mm-hmm. the time of death. What are, what, what is the thing that I die from and what does that, what has that done to my organ? So I might um, want to be able to think somebody else lives on because they have my heart. But if I die from heart disease, that is not a useful thing to offer. And so just because someone has said they want that, sometimes there's like a, a weird reverse grief that families go through when their thought was, well, at least our loved one will help give life to somebody else with this or that organ. And sometimes what comes back is the response on the organ donation team of, well, we couldn't use this or this or this. I'm sorry. And it sometimes that can feel like the ultimate rejection. Like, you know, we were willing to give given organs and they couldn't be used. And for, for, for each of us to know, and for us to have the conversation with our family that to say you're willing to be an organ donor is a willingness, not a, guarantee and what it will be that family family members may well be asked again individually organ by organ are you okay with this or this or this or this and to prepare people for that conversation because most most times i've been through that family was not expecting that conversation to happen and when you donate organs it has to be at the right time with the right blood you know 
yes, you, you might have a good heart or good lungs when you die because you, you died in a car accident or something. But if there isn't somebody in need at that moment of that organ with your same blood type, right? then right. it's not an option. Right. Um, but I know of a young girl in my last parish. Um, gosh, how old is she now? She's probably seven now or close to, not quite, no, she's not seven, um, maybe five or six now, somewhere in there, um, who was saved because parents of another young child selfish, unselfishly gave the heart of their child so that this little girl could live. Because mm-hmm. at six months old, she needed a new heart. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine what the family who donated that went through and the heartache um, yeah. but I have seen firsthand what organ donation can do for life. Yeah. And maybe in case this is a concern for anybody, um, because sometimes family members ask questions like if my loved one donates organs, can we still have a funeral like we intended mm-hmm. with an open casket or with a body or something like that? And many times the answer is yes. And they are amazing at what they can do cosmetically. Mm-hmm. And also because people are, clothed in caskets when they're buried like most of the time that's not uh, uh a factor at all um and so in case people were worried like oh if i'm an organ donor my family won't have the closure they need but being able to have a casket or a visitation no that mm-hmm. that's not the case um but it does mean that often somebody else's life either can continue and be prolonged or be enriched because of the donation of of an organ of a gift of life I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, Erica, on this subject, and that's that I heard you say that it's it's because of your faith as a Christian that you are willing to be or open to be an organ donor. That mm-hmm. sort of it's, it's an embodiment of the same kind of self-giving love that we find in Jesus. And it, to me, that seems an important thing for us to note, because, again, the Bible is of limited help in terms of specifics on this question, even less so than with burial. With burial, you get at least a handful of stories about so-and-so was buried or so-and-so was gathered to their ancestors or whatever. But uh, there's no such thing as a Bible verse about the subject of organ donation explicitly because that wasn't a possible, um, it wasn't even a, 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 an eventuality contingency in, in the first century or any centuries before that. And for us to say as 21st century Christians that our faith can be biblically informed, but that that's not the same thing as I'm only allowed to do things that a Bible verse tells me I'm allowed to do that. That's an important thing that at least uh, I can say, I'm grateful that tradition I come from is able mm-hmm. to articulate that, that I can say my faith can be biblically informed, but that's not to say I only do things that I've got a Bible verse proof text to tell me I'm allowed to do, but more, what is the character of Jesus and his kind of love look like? And how does that guide my action? So for me, very much like you describe, Erica, my choice to be an organ donor, if I can be useful in that way, comes out of my understanding of Jesus' love for us and Jesus' way of giving himself away. And even of being a good steward of what I've got to the very end. If at the very end, even this body and these molecules of mine can be useful for somebody, yeah, by all means, rather than just burying him in the ground. but um, for me, that's not because I've got one Bible verse to say I'm allowed to, but more the the broad sweep of what is the shape of Jesus' love look like. And it may be worth saying there are not every Christian tradition is like that. There are some tradition, uh, Christian traditions that would use what they call the regulative principle that is basically unless scripture says you're allowed to do it, you're not allowed to do it. And um, the the branch of Christianity from which I come does not 
think that way, but has, mm-hmm. would say almost the other way around where there's scripture prohibitions on things like that. And you're, uh, okay. Don't do, don't murder. Cause you know, but like that there where, where things aren't, aren't clearly spoken. There's a lot more freedom, uh, to, to do things or not do things. Well, and while there's no specific verse saying that thou shalt be an organ owner. Right. Or shalt not. Not. <laughs> or thou shalt not be an organ donor. I think, and I, I'm pretty sure it's, you know, Jesus talks about a friend giving up his life for a friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if I were to have to try to pick a verse to kind of explain my reasoning for being an organ donor, mm-hmm. that would be it. Sure. It's and, not a direct verse, but it, it leans in that direction. Yeah. And I, I think that that's such a helpful way of talking about it. Go ahead, Sarah. Uh, similarly, I think the rationale I would give is actually one of the commandments of thou shall not kill. Um, in Luther's small catechism, he flips that on its side, uh, upside down and says thou shall not kill means, you know, that you shall promote life. You shall mm-hmm. promote health of your um, of your neighbor. And so to me, that means if I am in a position to donate organs so that someone else might have life, I should do that. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I have contributed to that person's death. Yeah. And again, that's such a helpful way of framing it, that it's not about there's a verse that tells me specifically and explicitly, I can't do this or I can do that. But rather, it's about following a trajectory. What does what does it look like to love my neighbor and to care for my neighbor's well-being? Well, at the end of my life, I might not be able to help shuffle my neighbor's driveway, or I might not be able to uh, help my neighbor carry their groceries in. But if my organs can be helpful for um, helping a neighbor to live, yeah, that might be a way that I would be carrying out that commandment. And again, it's it's a whole different approach to understanding commandments. Instead of, did you follow the rules well enough to check it off a box? And more like, did you move in the direction of what where love points? Mm-hmm. And to, it, like, to, to me, that, that's how this all shakes down. Is it, It's what does it look like to live in the kind of love shaped by what we see in Jesus, who gives himself away, who loves not only people who he knows, friends and neighbors, but even strangers and enemies. I would say just again, talk to your loved ones about this and mm-hmm. continue talking to them about it. Like, this isn't necessarily a, oh, I've had this conversation once and therefore I'm done, but rather to talk, to keep talking about it, to remind your loved ones about the decisions you have made, but also because those who will be making the decisions for you when you are no longer able to give voice to your thoughts and your opinions and wishes might change. Right. Because mm-hmm. at the moment, mm-hmm. if I were to get into a horrific accident today or tomorrow, um, the person making that those decisions would be my spouse. But in 20, 30 years, that might be my children. Mm-hmm. So I think continuing to have this conversation is good. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully, like we even began to talk about in our first episode, the ability to talk about these things makes them less scary potentially. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the ability to revisit them means it's less like, okay, now I never have to think about it again. But because especially as, as Christians whose regular weekly and yearly rhythm of life 
includes talk about death and resurrection and the reality of death and also the hope of resurrection as part of our regular way of, of thinking and, and even worshiping that, that allows us to frame conversation or our individual death and that bigger story. So it's not so scary, but oh, yep, my death is a part of the big story, but also so is Jesus' death and resurrection. And every Sunday we are regrounded in that central story in some way, shape or form. Um, and that allows us then to talk more honestly about uh, what we want to see happen in in our own individual stories as well. And I would say, going back to the cremation versus burial thing, okay, my, yeah. perso- my personal preference is burial. Okay. That's me. And I have my reasoning behind it and everything. Um, but that's not always an option mm-hmm. um, because of tragedies and things. Um, there, there may not be a, a body that can be with the magic of funeral home directors and the makeup and everything that they can do, that might not be an option. And so to have that conversation and say, my preference is this, Mm -hmm. but heaven forbid something should happen to my body where that can't happen. Yeah. You have my permission then to cremate my body. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say too, in my own family's experience, um, uh, my grandfather passed away when I was um, like between seventh and eighth grade and his wishes uh, were very, very clear and sort of stoically do nothing for me. I don't want a funeral, nothing at all, cremation. And like, I think for him, it was this intentional act of humility of like, don't make a big fuss over mm-hmm. me, you know, that kind of like stiff upper lip uh, kind of mentality. And as a family, we tried our very best to honor those wishes. And we lasted about six months before as a family, we were like, sorry, grandpa, we as a family need closure in a way that mm-hmm. you're honoring your wishes did not allow for us. And so we ended up having a memorial service for my grandfather and one day in glory if he's mad at me i guess we'll deal with it um i mean as as a kid when it happened so he'll be mad at kid me um but we're we didn't we didn't go to a funeral home at that point or have a casket um and there but like it was the sense of we needed the closure of things and that's an important piece for conversation that whatever someone's wishes are for what happens to the physicalness of me um that also we attend to how do our families begin to get some kind of closure not that a a religious service or ceremony fixes that all in one afternoon or one day but uh sometimes just having that experience of going through a funeral or maybe even including the burial and committal at the cemetery whether it's a box uh that holds ashes or a casket or whatever but that really is an important piece not not for me i'm I'm not going to know about what happens when i'm dead but like for my family Mm -hmm. yeah i mean like that that sense of the the funeral as is often said the funeral is for the living for those who are grieving and mourning trying to process the the person who is deceased doesn't need it they're already in the presence of jesus um but the we don't we need to think in terms of what what will be helpful for my loved ones who are going to be trying to pick up pieces next time we're going to sort of carry on some of this conversation about um making sure we bring our family members in uh, our decision making as we think especially about the medical and legal documents that are around now about end of life or healthcare decisions and how we have those conversations while we're while we're living and in good health so join us next time here on crazy faith talk see y'all Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.